So his name is Aaron Ralston. He's the consummate outdoorsman. He travels everywhere, and he sees the kinds of places that uh, you either see in magazines or documentaries, but he's the guy that goes in. And if you know his story, then you know that at one point he was exploring a cave in Utah, and a freak accident, a boulder falls on his arm, and it pins him in, and he's there for five days trying to extricate himself until, brace yourself, he has to amputate his own forearm. I'm not going to show you a clip of that. But in the moment, uh, he's having to recall all sorts of things, and as you might expect, being exposed to the elements and being deprived of water and having to consider uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of last-ditch effort to rescue yourself, he has all sorts of visions and hallucinations. And when he finally does that and is able to escape that cave and is uh, air-vacked out of the area and, uh, and recovers... The last scene of the film, which is called 127 Hours, uh, you see Aaron Ralston's character um, swim through a pool. And he's missing one arm, of course. And and he comes up to the edge of the pool. And and there, at the edge of the pool, there's a scene where he, there's a couch next to a pool. And on the couch is everyone he loves. Everyone who was worried about him. Everybody who who cares for him, everybody who helped bring him to the point he was. And, and, then, and then cuts to another scene of, of a woman and, and the actual Aaron Ralston and a little baby. And what those two scenes represent are the images that he had had in his, in his duress, in his, in his tragedy, images of what those who loved him and who held him, but also an image of the woman he would come to marry and have with whom he'd have a child. That was the closest call he had ever had. And now, I don't, you know, that's, that's the stuff that films are made of, and I don't know if any of you have had a film made about yourself. Maybe you have. But you may not have had that kind of a close call. But there was still, you've had your moments. And, and maybe there was a part of you that wondered, you know, what, what kept me from it being a far more severe calamity? The difference between those who will believe in God and those who will not perhaps comes down to how do they interpret their events. Is, is whatever fortunate outcomes they have attributable simply to a set of random, disconnected circumstances, or is there an unseen hand behind all things? And Aaron Ralston does not allude to that in any of his speech, but he does say something in an interview that I think resonates with the passage that we're going to listen to today. He said, it's not a nightmare at all. It is perhaps the most beautiful story I will get to experience in my entire life. He was at the risk of death, and he lost limb, even if he didn't lose life. And yet in that, he found beauty, and he found gratitude. And that, beloved, and those who are watching from elsewhere, this, this resonates with where we're going today. This summer, we are, if you will, listening to Israel's record collection. We're listening to the songs that they would sing over and over and over again. We're listening to the songs that they would sing to themselves on the way as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And this morning we're going to listen to one of those songs that was a close call. And we're going to see, we're consider what it is that they faced and what is it that they gleaned from that. And then of course, what is it that you and I should glean from that song, which is ours. So I wonder if you might stand and hear this very brief psalm, Psalm 124. 
our central text for today is found in Psalm 124, 1 through 8, a song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who is on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who is on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like the bird from the snare of fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. Gage got a new do. Gage, you like your new do. Whatever happened to Israel in that moment that gave rise to this psalm, whatever it was, we don't know precisely, it must have been terrifying. Um, it was not a random act like a boulder happened to fall upon them. This was a calculated effort at malice because you hear him speak of men's whose anger was kindled against them, and that anger was not to toy with them or simply berate them or chastise them. It was to end them. It was to subdue them. And so you heard some really vivid language about whatever it is, whatever this assault that had come upon them. It spoke of them uh, as, as being nearly swallowed up by the wrath that had been borne down upon them. They were nearly swept away on it, that there was a, as if there was a torrent that came over them with raging waters. I know... It's, it's almost too hard to see, but you've probably seen in recent years the, the footage of tsunamis hitting, hitting islands in the Pacific Rim. And it's, I mean, you've been at high tide, but you, there's nothing like this. There's the wall of water that approaches with such ferocity and decimates everything in its path. That's, that's how Israel interpreted their moment. And before they're done, they, they press the metaphor a little bit further when they speak of it as if they were prey in the teeth of a predator, or they were a bird in the snare of a hunter. They are everywhere being hemmed in and hunted. And as you may have seen as we've, as we've tracked through these psalms of ascent from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, sometimes you will see a, um, a prefacing comment at each one, and, and this one has one. It's called, Of David. Now, we don't always know if that means it's written by David. Is it, is it about David? Is it in honor of David? We're not really sure. But some people who listen to this psalm connect some dots and wonder if this might represent a moment um, in David's history from 2 Samuel 5. In that moment, David is king. He's being hunted by the Philistines. They have him surrounded he takes refuge in what he called the stronghold, something like a fortress or a fort. And there, hemmed in and hunted, he asks the Lord, hey, do I, do I go up against them? And the Lord says, do it. Go up. And there, outnumbered by the Philistines, he takes them on, those who mean to have him end, and, and he defeats them. And in the wake of that defeating them, he shouts, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. He knows what could have happened. He knows what he was on the precipice of. He knows what might have befallen him. But it was a close call, but he was delivered. And in that, he gives praise. 
From that, he worships. Look, every song you and I have ever known or ever sung has a theme. From the, from the very first song that you might have learned as a kid, Mary Had a Little Lamb, uh, to the songs that you sing over and over in the shower, um, to, to the country western music that my wife likes. Uh, her favorite is George Jones. Uh, he stopped loving her today. Um, when, 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 when she starts playing that, she uses it actually as disciplinary effort for my children if they don't shut up. Um, I'm going to play George Jones again, right? Every song from that one to this one, they all have a theme. And, and, and some of those songs are more profound than others. But they all have something to say. Friends, beloved, atheists, theists among us. Here's the theme of this song. God preserves. God acts to preserve. Israel, at the brink of their own destruction, they cry out, the Lord delivers, and from that, they conclude, as we heard in Psalm 121, and as you will hear in every single Psalm of Ascent, God is their help. He is more than just the maker of heaven and earth, though he is that. He is more than just their ethical north star, but he is that. He is their help. And I know you might something want something more you know, nuanced and sophisticated and complicated. I mean, you got up and you took a shower and you even made it, right? Could it, can it be something a little bit more profound than that? I don't, that's it. That's the teaching of the text. That's the song's theme. God is our help. God is the one who preserves. And we have to wrestle with that. And you already are, probably. Just as I have wrestled with that, even as I began studying that. So let's, let's wrestle with it a little bit, okay? Because as soon as I say to you or to anybody else that God preserves, your first question is, um, how can you be so confident of that, psalmist? Like, wasn't it, why, why can't you just describe it to dumb luck? They're just lucky, man. Why, why do you want to credit God for these remarkable turn of events that led to their deliverance? And look, I get that. I, I not only understand that sentiment, I sympathize with it. But go with me for just a second, okay? Let, let's consider that for a minute. First of all, let's just think about God for a moment while we're here and everything. <laughs> if God is responsible for everything, like we think he may, for everything, is it, is it possible that he could intervene to bring help in a very particular finite circumstance, even at a large scale, like whatever befell Israel in the moment. Is that possible, given who God is, what he has done? Is that possible? Of course. Okay? Sub point 2a. If, if God we know is primarily about love, even more so than we know him as one who is powerful or who is spirit, if, if we believe him to be one who is three yet one and therefore has lived in a unity, a community of unity, forever, a community of three persons who have loved each other forever, then is it possible that he might want to intervene to bring about goodness unto you? Is that possible? Of course. I, I understand why we might want to hesitate, and whereas that is not proof of anything, it is not proof that he did simply because he is capable or that he might be willing. Is it not at least plausible that he can? Of course it's plausible. C.S. Lewis 
makes an argument from the point of view of literature. And, and in this quote I'm going to share with you, it's not so much he's talking about somebody's deliverance, he's actually talking about somebody's destruction, but I think the point still holds. He, he said this, Suppose that in a novel a character gets killed in a railway accident. Is his death due to chance, the signals being wrong, or to the novelist? Of course, both. The chance is the way the novelist removes the character at the exact moment his story requires. There's a good line in Spencer, he says, to quote to oneself, It chanced, Almighty God, that chance did guide. Which, okay, that's 1940s British highbrow, right? What does he mean? To say that things happened apparently at random and to say that God is at work in the midst of those are not mutually exclusive possibilities. The things work in ways that you and I are not capable of discerning, but to rule God out from the get-go is more an act of faith than if you believe it. They're both acts of faith. And sometimes, though, that's an argument, and that has its certain weight, but sometimes the argument has an even greater profundity when you hear it from the, from the standpoint not of literature as an analysis, but, but story itself. So let me quote something from C.S. Lewis that he wrote in one of his works of fiction from, from one of the Narnia books, from The Horse and His Boy. If you know that story, Shasta is, one of the, is sort of the main character, and at one point in the story, Shasta is abandoned by all those who know him and love him as friends, and he starts to despair, thinking that maybe he is only subject to a bunch of forces that are random and and therefore there is no rhyme or reason to what he's going through and Aslan shows up because Aslan always shows up there right and Aslan says unto Shasta I don't call you unfortunate said the large voice don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions said Shasta there was only one lion said the voice I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. I know that speaks of several different plot elements in the story if you're not familiar with it. I don't think I remember most of it. But here's the point. You jump to conclusions if you believe that God is not able to be involved in what appears only to you as a bunch of disconnected, unrelated events. Let me, let me bring to you a, a little more familiar story, and this one's for you kids. Um, Toy Story 2, right? They're all on a mission. They're out to rescue their friend. And, well, they approach a very busy intersection. Hey, guys, why do the toys cross the road? Not now, Ham. Oh, I love riddles. Why? To get to the chicken on the other side. <laughs> Yippee! The chicken! Oh, well, we tried. We'll have to cross. <gasps> You're not turning me into a mashed potato. I may not be a smart dog, but I know what roadkill is. There must be a safe way. Okay, here's our chance. Ready, set, go! Drop! Go! Drop! 
a drop! Well, complete chaos all around them, but something to preserve them. I know it's silly, but isn't it possible that the God that we know who is responsible for all things and whose love is steadfast as we've been singing and saying even in these few minutes together that it's possible that he's involved? Now, sure. But now let's ask the harder question. It's a hard question to say, why do you credit him so carefully? Why does the psalmist speak so you know, effusively, sing so effusively about that? But here's the harder question. What happens if, what about then the help that you sought, the help that you asked for didn't come in the way that you thought or in the time that you felt like it was reasonable? Because that's true for us too. And that hurts. And harm comes to us. And we have to ask ourselves, so how do I sing this psalm with any integrity if what I know is help didn't come in the way that I thought? Let me, let me offer you a few responses based upon meditation and resting myself. One is, the first response is not even a response. What, what do you say to somebody in that moment? Like, my, my wife had lunch with somebody over the weekend, and, and that person told my wife a story about something that befell a child that if, if that doesn't question your faith in everything, it'll question your faith in humanity. And so what about when, when help really would have been appropriate and timely but didn't come? What do you, here's one response. The first response is not even a response. The first response is this, to weep with those who weep. To sit with those who know only thing but sorrow. To, to wonder aloud with them while they are wondering aloud why. To, to seek to be of support to them in the midst of their sorrow. And, and for those whose lives, not only their lives have been assaulted, but their very faith has been assaulted, you have faith for them in the moment. Friends, that is one way God exerts his help for you. God is our help in that. But let me offer you a second response to that too, and that is this. Um, are you sure that he hasn't abandoned his people when he's done a really wonderful job of infiltrating the entire earth with folks like you who take God's intervention for help as a model and therefore you get to incarnate that in the real world? To say that he has given up or that he's not at work is, is to miss the fact that he has actually commissioned all of us unto that work. If only we will give ourselves to it and step into it. Sure, we want God to act with extraordinary measures such that, you know, you avoid that kind of calamity there across a busy intersection, but what if we were just the ones to help usher them across? Yes, we like extraordinary measures, but what about just ordinary people doing extraordinary things at great sacrifice to themselves? Yes, God helps, just not always in the means by which you think he will. 
All right, let me, let me mention a really, though, even thornier question. What about if the help, or, the, or rather the harm, came to us in the midst of his people? There are storylines like that. How has God our help when, in fact, harm came to us in the midst of the people that claimed to know him? Next week, our country will properly celebrate its independence from tyranny to begin the American experiment. But if you've ever read Frederick Douglass's lecture that he gave in 1836 called, What Does the Fourth of July Have to Do for the Slave? He, he finds it simply untenable to speak well of liberty when, when slavery was still at work. And yet he is honest enough to say, and he did so say, that if you abolish slavery tomorrow, America, you wouldn't have to change one single word of the Constitution. Because the ideals that they outlined in that and other documents, even though they failed to live by those ideals in the moment, they, by those ideals, by those words, lit a delayed fuse for the end of their compromises. What do I, what's the point of that, friends? The Lord has baked in to the faith that we once contend with. He has baked in to the belief that holds us. He has baked in to his church the very seeds of destruction of anything that would come against it. And that's why Jesus will say, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I don't know why he permits it to happen in some moments in that moment, but I do know that he has built into the system the very things that will uproot and undo the things that mean to militate against its goodness. In that he is our help. But with all that said, there is one more thing to say. Take the Apostle Paul for just a moment. He suffered greatly, if you know his story. He was ridiculed, he was abused, he was on the brink of death several times, harassed, hunted, harangued, all of it. And in many instances, he would say that through those experiences of suffering, he learned an important lesson, how not to rely upon himself or any other circumstance. He learned to rely upon the Lord. He wasn't saying that those experiences of suffering were necessary, but he is saying that good came from them. And that is why he can say in a full-throated, unhesitant way what he says in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sleep, sheep to be slaughtered. No, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God Christ, our Jesus, our Lord. What I take from this psalm in conjunction from what I know from the entire storyline of the Bible is that God offers help and what we have to do is see that help at a much different scale than even our immediate circumstances. Why we may not be able to relate to the kind of precise experience that the psalmist is speaking of, and yet, beloved, if you're a Christian, you and I can relate to that experience because of this. 
however ever you might understand yourself or define yourself or identify yourself. If you believe in Jesus, if you walk in his way, then you fundamentally have to understand yourself as one who has been rescued. You have been rescued, and it's not because of your resourcefulness, and it's not because of your worthiness, and it's not just because of some random occurrence. It was because of his choice and his act. That's the gospel, because there was a moment when Jesus did not elude suffering. Men did rise up with their anger kindled, and they were not prevented from doing him harm. He was as prey in their teeth and as as bird in a snare. But his soul was kept. And by his father, the snare of death, he escaped and he escaped death for our good. And the reason we celebrate that and remember that and reflect upon that and why I said at the beginning of our worship service, we have to recount the steadfast love of the Lord. You and I have to consider what it would be had he not done what he did. We would have had to find a solution for our own sin. We would have had to find a healing from our own corruption. We would have had to find some other way to reconcile ourselves to God and we would have had to wonder all the lifelong day for all of our years, is death an end or is it only a beginning? But for him, those were our questions. But because of him, those questions have different answers. He prevails in resurrection. That's the song. That's the theme. What's the takeaway? I think it's this. Psalm 124 is more than a harrowing story. And it's more than just Israel worshiping. In fact, if you listen in verse 1, when he starts to recount how things could have gone badly, he says, let Israel say. He's inviting them along, not only to hear what he's saying, but to do what he is doing. Now I'm about to ask you a rhetorical question that may insult your intelligence, so I apologize in advance. But when you come here into this room or whenever we gather, what are your intentions? What is your goal? Now, if you're like me, I know what your impulse is. Whether you state it or not, your goal is to evaluate. Well, I kind of like that song, or the sermon was a little bit long, <laughs> um, or, um, you know, I wish they had more of this or less of that. You evaluate, and I do too, but, hmm. But if I were to ask you, why do you what's your intentions? You, you might say, I, I gather to reconnect with people whom I love who come to share in the same faith that I do. You might say, I come to learn. I come to hear what the scripture says and I come to learn. And I would say to you, those are both true and appropriate things. And yet, there is one intention that must be your intention. I know it's been about... Uh, Five weeks since I've quoted Paul Kingsnorth, so I know you're going through withdrawal. But that story just stuck with me, and it still does. You know that story. He began as an atheist as a child, and then in the last year, something hunted him, and he found that that thing that was hunting him was Jesus. And he says, 
very frankly in his story, he says this, I practiced Zazen and studied the teachings of the Buddha. It's clear enough why Buddhism is taking off in the West as Christianity declines. Its metaphysical claims seem convincing. Its practices, when taught properly, yield results. And as a tradition, it is even older than Christianity. It is, in short, a serious spiritual path, but with none of the cultural baggage of the church. And yet, as the years went on, Zen was not enough. It was full of compassion, but it lacked love. It lacked something else, too. And it took me a long time to admit to myself what it was. I wanted to worship. My teenage atheist self would have been horrified. Something was happening to me, slowly, steadily, that I didn't understand but could clearly sense. I felt like I was being filed gently into a new shape. Did you catch that? I wanted to worship. Beloved, do you want to worship? Do you want to reflect upon God's worthiness and express that worthiness from your heart? What is that? I, I know that kind of lives out there, and especially if you're younger, you, you know, I, I, I sit, I, I, I stand when they stand, I, I recite the stuff they put on the screen, they're singing, maybe I should sing too, but what is it? What is worship? Great question, and if you, we all have to be searching for an answer to that, so I'm going to show you, but from a very odd place. Oscar Schindler, he ran a ceramics warehouse in World War II, he was a member of the Nazi party but he ended up preserving 1,100 Jewish lives by employing them in his factory. And he risked all sorts of things and spent a lot of his own resources in order to preserve them. And at the, near the end of the movie about his life, World War II, it has just been announced, has come to an end. The Russians are now closing in on where he and his factory and the Jews are. And he realizes, being a member of the Nazi party, it's likely that he would be uh, apprehended and imprisoned and so he absconds in the dark of night and here in this scene in his last few moments with those that he preserved you are going to see i think a picture of what worship is Thank you, Mr. Yarev. Thank you, Mr. Yarev. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Mr. Yarev. Open wide. Thank you, Mr. Yarev. Thank you, Mr. Yerev. 
we've written a letter trying to explain things in case you were captured. Every worker has signed it. praying the prayer of the Kadesh, the prayer for the dead, entrusting them to the goodness of the Lord. And then one of them gives up some of his teeth in which the gold cap might be sacrificed to be fashioned into a ring that it might be given to the one who preserved them, who was their help. For you see, in that movie, not only do they give thanks for Oscar Schindler, they give thanks to the Lord that they believe is the one who entrusted Oscar Schindler with the means to preserve them. Friends, this is worship. It is gathering. It is hearing. It is learning. But it is wanting to offer something of yourself in gratitude for his provision, such that if, if God were to take your provision and he were to accidentally drop it, he would fumble down in the rocks in order to pick it up in order to get it because he cherished what you had given him. I, I think that's what worship is. It's not a lecture. It's not a class. It's offering something of ourselves. And believe me, I'm the first to say, sometimes that's hard. And sometimes I need a little help. Well, good news, you're in good company. Beloved, this is our task. This is our reason for being. And how we do this splits out into every single other thing you and I do in life. Blessed be the Lord, who is our help the one who is maker of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, help us from, from this day forth and ongoing. It's not as if this is new, we know. But I hope that you might help me to every time I come into this room or gather with anybody, whether it be here or elsewhere, to offer what a simple gift I have that maybe of no real remarkableness. And that you invite us into that ourselves and help us to recount and help us to praise even in the midst of our afflictions. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The peace of the Lord be with you.